You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and today's episode is the second half of my conversation with Jesse Green, the author of what is without a doubt the most talked about theater book in years, the New York Times bestseller, Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers. Last week, Jesse shared with us how Mary Rogers selected him to tell the story of her remarkable journey from her childhood to her teenage years, during which she was surrounded by many of the greatest figures from the golden age of Broadway, but yearned for love and attention from her father, composer Richard Rogers of Rogers and Hammerstein, but also struggled to get out from under the thumb of her disapproving mother, Dorothy. Today, we look at the work and career of Mary Rogers and how, as a working mother, mother raising six children, she was able to somehow become a successful Broadway composer in her own right and then reinvent herself to become a best-selling author and a leader in arts philanthropy. This episode is made possible in part by the generous contributions of our patron-level members, Gary Fuller and Randy Everett. And if you too would like to support Broadway Nation, there'll be information about how to do that at the end of the show. Here we go. Let's talk a little bit about her work. She is very modest about it, but she has two significant works, in my view, that just keep coming back. First on Broadway with Once Upon a Mattress, which not only is done on Broadway, but then is done on television three times, I believe. What are the stats today about how often that show is produced? Well, when I last checked with what used to be called the Rodgers and Hammerstein office, it was the sixth most produced musical that they represented. And when you consider what the top five are, I mean, that's saying quite a lot and produced a tremendous amount of income still. It's really fascinating. I gave a lot of time to the development of the show. I read a review that somebody said, who cares how they put the show together? Why so much time on But I think it's really fascinating and useful, particularly for anyone who wants to write a musical. But it's just also fascinating about how things come together and the accidents that become long term selling points. And you can read about it in the book. But basically, among other things, they were given a task to write a show that would employ nine lead performers. Tell us where this happens. Right. So in the summer of 59, or maybe it's 58, she goes to Tamament, which was kind of an off-off Broadway train 
training camp. And it had been a union retreat for years. And it was now a place where mostly Jewish young singles came looking to find mates. And while they were there, the guy who ran the theater part of it would put on shows that they could come and see, give them entertainment. And he hired people to write reviews. And if they wanted to, they could also then, in the second half of the season, try to write a show. And that's what happened. That's how The Princess of the Pea, as it was called, came to be. But in letting them try to write this, he said, I have nine principal performers who I pay a lot of money to, which, you know, maybe it was $100 a week. And you've got to give them all lead roles. Okay. So that's a lot. And it's fascinating how that fact, which sounds like a terrible constraint, became one of the reasons, aside from the wit, that that show has, 60 years later, still done all over the world. World and in high schools and community theaters everywhere, because there's a lot of roles for people. And you can read how one of them didn't know how to sing, and one of them could barely move, and one of them was this, and one of them was that. So they wrote to those limitations. Well, there's somebody with that limitation in every community theater. So it's brilliant in that way. And it's also, as I say, a lot of fun. And the score is wonderful. We have an opening for a princess, for a genuine certified princess.
And then it came to Off-Broadway and George Abbott came on and how, how it got rewritten really fast is a kind of hilarious story. How it got cast is a sad story in certain ways. There's an amazing piece about Jane White who played the Queen. And I don't want to give away, but it's really a devastating story about her casting. So I did give a lot of attention to Once Upon a Mattress for those reasons, and also because it was her big hit. But there were lots more things she wrote, which people may not be as familiar with. And she had other hits. The Mad Show was a hit. Yes. We remember that show mostly for one song, the song she wrote with Sondheim, but she was involved heavily with that entire show. Yeah, and it's a very good representation of the kind of thumb-on-your-nose moment when it came out. It plays like Mad Magazine. It's a very good version of that. Some of the stuff is dated, of course, but some of it isn't if you listen to the cast album. It's it's really clever. I grew up with that album, so ah. I know those songs really well, and they're still funny. They're still very, very funny. There are certain facts in life that can upset you. take us out of psycho when janet lee was bleeding in the bath although i never watched the man from uncle i know i wouldn't like it if i did i saw a scene or two for mary poppins i think it's too sadistic for a kid We stand so hand in hand in hand. We're gonna stamp out hate. That's our creed. Wipe out violence, intolerance, and greed. We're gonna start right now. Tomorrow is too late. We're, We're gonna, gonna stamp out hate. We're gonna stamp out hate. Stamp it in the ground And then take happiness And spread it all around We'll put an end to grief We can hardly wait We're gonna stamp out hate We're gonna stamp out hate Sock it in the eye Shoot it in the stomach Yelling die, die, die We'll pull its insides out And look at what it ate We're gonna stamp out Who's the boss? Take him up a lonely hill and nail him to a cross. Won't it be kicks to watch the blood coagulate? We're gonna stamp out hate. gentlemen in these troubled times i think there's a lesson to be learned from these dedicated young people okay, get the getting together on a hold him still oh. 
Broadway Nation will be back right after this quick break. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. You've worked hard for what you have your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Tall and slender like an Apollo, he goes walking by. And I have to follow him, the boy from the Grim Boladum del Fuego, Santa Malipa, Sacateges, La Jota del Sol y Cruz. And then she had her flops and really never had a musical theater big success again or even any kind of success. But it doesn't mean she didn't write some glorious music. And I had access to a lot of the stuff she wrote much later, which unfortunately is tied up in contractual problems and cannot be performed except as individual songs. Some of them are, and I hope most of them will be at some point, but she had grown a tremendous amount. And it's just a shame we didn't get to hear where she might have gone with that. But she wasn't going to spend the rest of her life fighting to get into something that wasn't letting her in anymore. So she moved on. She said she had a lot of arrows in her quiver and she wasn't afraid to try all of them. And so she moved on to writing young adult books. To me, the heartbreaking one there is Member of the Wedding, which sounds Yes. like it would be phenomenal. It's interesting. She has the same flops. Everybody has flops. Even Rodgers and Hammerstein chose the wrong subject matter and had flop shows. But then she didn't have a hit to make up for it. And again, maybe this is where that idea of access, she didn't have the access to then get to the next hit. Well, and it may also be that, you know, in trying to have it all, eventually she had to face that she couldn't because she just couldn't give all of her life to something that wasn't giving back to her what she needed from it. She had children. She had to make money. I know it sounds like a joke. The daughter of Richard Rogers has to make money, but she did. She had to make money. And she went looking for something else that she would enjoy where she could maybe get in more easily. And lo and behold, she found it and then she did it again. You know, she had at least three major careers. It's so interesting. She then, with Freaky Friday, becomes a best-selling young adult novelist. Yeah. And again, like Mattress, so cleverly thought through and structured and wittily written that it remains, you know, a bestseller and its sequels to this day. Maybe you don't hit the center of the zeitgeist a hundred times, but if you hit it twice in different fields, that's pretty great. And then when that wasn't working for her anymore, she was trying to write adult novels. It wasn't really happening. I should point out, of course, that Freaky Friday is about a mother and a daughter switching roles and trying to learn to respect each other more. So that's not an accident. But then she became a very important important woman in musical philanthropy and became the chairman of the board of Juilliard for many years. She had a brilliant third act. 
Why do you think this book has struck such a chord with people beyond what you would think would be the core audience for it to become a New York Times bestseller? This has gone beyond the musical theater maniacs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, aren't we all musical theater maniacs? Uh, I'd like to think so, but yes. There's a couple of reasons. One, I think that the story of a woman of that period wanting everything and getting a lot, suffering for it in many ways, too. I mean, there's some really pretty tragic moments in the book. But speaking, as we've discussed, honestly about what it meant to find her way as a woman in fields dominated by men and to have a life at the same time. I think that's a story that you don't need to know Once Upon a Mattress or even West Side Story to appreciate. So there's that. I think, though, if I may say that it's how funny the book is. She is so funny. And I made it a goal in writing it that I was going to get, if I could, onto every page. And it's a long book. At least three things that were either outrageous or hilarious or that made you think that were really smart or clever about making connections between this and that. She provided sometimes the actual finished thoughts for that, and when not, the raw material for it. I got pretty close to that number. It's just, as I said at the beginning, I wanted you to feel as if you were sitting at a table with her at a gala and hearing some of her stories. Because the book manages that feat, I think people love it. I know when I look at it now, I mean, you know, I spent 10 years working on it. When I look at it and, you know, I read something that I forgot is in there and sure. I you know, I can't believe it. I'm just like, oh, my God, this is so funny or this is so trenchant. I'm not patting myself on the back. It's just that raw material that she had in her life was a gift. And I think people feel that. I think you're right. And you succeeded in putting at least three of those things on every page because it (laughs) it is part of why you just keep turning the page. And people have said to me over and over, I couldn't put it down. I just could not put that book down, which is a real achievement, especially given subject matter that's somewhat arcane to the general reader. Well, I thought a lot about that, some of it with her. And we talked about not having it chronological actually helps because you sort of are drawn along into new things and you get to learn things that are important before they happen so that you want to get to the time when they will happen. You want to hear, oh, how does that go? And, you know, writing in many short sections, I think, is part of a trick to make a page turner. If you're reading at night and you've read a six or eight page section, I can read one more, (laughs) whereas if the sections are 40 pages, you don't. So there's lots of that, but it's mostly her voice. And I think as the book goes along, the increased interaction between her voice and my voice, at some point, I just have to take over and do the whole thing in my own voice. A lot of the book is about the challenges between parents and children, from her parents to her children. I know you have children. Do you see this as a parenting guide in any way? What, what, what do we learn? What are the parenting tips to take away from this book? Well, I don't know that her kids would suggest using her as a basis for a parenting guide, but I liked a lot of what I knew about her parenting. And of course, as you say, her parenting was specifically and absolutely in reaction to the parenting she got from her parents. Everything that her parents did, she set out to do the opposite. I think sometimes that's great. She taught her kids to swear. (laughs) I mean, she taught them the words. And what she taught with it, she says, is when you use them and where. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's so much smarter than pretending that certain words don't exist or refusing to mention them or talk about them. She's really good, it seems to me, about sex, which you might expect. 
And I, I don't want to get into it, but teaching the kids more than many kids get taught and making sure that they were protected and safe as well. Basically, and this is something I wasn't great at as a parent, being up for a fun time all the time. On the other hand, I think her kids, some of her kids would say that she wasn't always there and some of them needed. And particularly her first marriage with a husband who was a sort of standard man of that era, except for being gay, insofar as he was at work all the time and he didn't do a lot of the parenting stuff. And if she was out all night working on a show, it was nannies all the time. I think there are downsides to her parenting as well as certainly to her parents' parenting, but all things told, I'd rather have been her child than her parents' child. When she's very honest about that, and I think it's part of the struggle of a woman in that period, and she's quite unusual. How many children does she have? She has five? She gave birth to six, and five made it to adulthood. Yeah, which is... Not typical of women and especially a career woman in a career where you have to be out late at night. It's not just a career woman. This is in show business. Well, she loved being pregnant. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) And I think she probably loved how you get pregnant, too. Yeah, yeah. So I found all that really interesting and how it ties all these themes together as well. Yeah, my kids knew her when they were younger. I mean, they're now in their late 20s. They adored her and Hank as well. But she was really, really great at showing kids how to be real and fun and not stuffy and controlling. She was just the best. Whatever else she didn't provide, you'll talk to her kids when they write their book. (laughs) And what kind of reaction have you gotten from the family, from people that know her? What's been the reviews from the inside circle? Well, the family's been fantastic. They were really asked to put up with a lot, which was that they helped me when I needed to check things or this or that, but they were not, by Mary's insistence, which was in a written document Mary made, they were not allowed to see the book. It was published without their review. So that's a lot for a parent to ask of their children or to disallow their children. And given that, I'm amazed at how terrific they've been. I'm sure they each have their own reactions and things that they maybe wish weren't in it. When I think about like, if this was my mother, would I want all that in there? But, you know, I wasn't writing for them much as I like them all. I was writing for her. So I would say basically they've been great. I do hope there's more from them on this because it's an endlessly interesting subject. From the people who knew her, there are a few people who are like, how dare you put that in the book? What am I going to do? You you know, I I did censor her a tiny bit. There were a few things that I just like, no, Mary, we're not doing that. But for the most part, the thing she was willing to say, which was 95, 97, 98% of her life, it was all going to go in. And I'm sorry if some people didn't like that. Mostly what I hear is, oh, my God, she's back. You know, they read it, they hear her, they feel like she's in the room with them. And that's the most gratifying of all. Well, it's a real achievement. You deserve all the praise that it's getting. Well, she deserves a lot of it too. Well, and you deserve a lot of the praise for fulfilling Mary's wishes, because it seems to me from the outside, you delivered the book that Mary wanted there to be. I hope so. I'll never know. But as you read in the book, the only pages she read, she said, make them meaner, make them funnier. I didn't know how to do that. I thought they were pretty mean and pretty funny as it was, but I tried to keep it up for the whole 450 pages, and I think I did. Jesse Green, thank you so much. It's been so great to have you on Broadway Nation to talk about Shy. Thank you so much, David. It's been a blast. They all lived happily, happily, happily ever after. The couple is happily leaving the chapel eternally tied. As the curtain descends, there is nothing but loving and laughter. And 
the fairy tale ends. The heroine's always a If you're a fan of this podcast, I invite you to become a patron of the show by joining our Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For a contribution of just $7 a month, you can receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of many of the discussions that I have with my guests. In fact, I often record nearly twice as much conversation as ends up in the edited versions of the podcast. You will also have access to additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans, that have not been featured on Broadway Nation. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. And if you're particularly enthusiastic about Broadway Nation, there are additional patron levels that come with even more benefits. To join, go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech That's supercast.tech, S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T. Or you can find the link in the show notes to this episode or in our Broadway Nation Facebook group, which I also invite you to join. Now it's my pleasure to give my heartfelt thanks to longtime members Elizabeth Troxler, Ellie Schaefer, Judy Hooka, Steve Reynolds, Robert Braun, Roger Clarice, Chris Mode, and Neil Hoyt. And new member Kelly Allen. Thank you so much for your generous support. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Powell's Mox for his help with editing this episode and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Rapunzel had platinum dresses that would double the length of her dresses. She was kept in a tower for years by a wicked old witch. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.